Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. What are you doing? What are you doing? Rogue police units. Haley kind of snatched me up. He ended up grabbing me by my arm. I ended up going to the emergency room. Another alleged victim of the Memphis Five comes forward in a Revolt Black News exclusive. Like they took it too far. And two black men in Mississippi claim they suffered horrific abuse from a similar police unit. They were called racial slurs. It was traumatizing, man. It, it was uh, repeatedly called a night of hell, something I never thought I would go through. And at other times, monkeys, and they were questioned as to why they were dating white women. We bring the discussion right here to the studio. What I see is gang assaults carried out by police officers. Are these aggressive units necessary for fighting crime, or are they just terrorizing our communities? There's no such thing as a good cop. Then, love in black and white. Do you think that that tells us maybe that white men, have they been waiting for this moment? <laughs> I think they've been waiting for this episode right now on Revolt Black <laughs> News to be like, y'all got it, we just wanted to say hey. More black women are dating white men than ever before. Black Bachelorette Charity Lawson stops by the Revolt Studios as we explore the new face of interracial dating. Love at the end of the day, love is love. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara Escampo. We start tonight in Memphis with important updates on the officers charged with murder in the death of Tyree Nichols and an exclusive interview with a woman who says Tyree wasn't the only person the Scorpion unit assaulted. How does she know? Well, she claims that she was also a victim of their violent, brutal tactics. Haley walked to my car and asked me, he said, hey, how you doing? And asked me, have I heard a shooting or have I seen anything? Where's your ID? Why you need my, what I do, what I do? It's the nightmare Memphis resident Khadijah Towns still can't shake two and a half years later. A dangerous encounter with Scorpion unit officer Demetrius Haley. Why would I, what, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Trying to get these. I know that I was targeted. <laughs> I'm scared of the police. I don't want to deal with them. Excuse me, why are you touching her? Khadijah's aunt recorded the incident on her phone. My hand is up, I ain't got nothing. She's not resistant. Towns told Revolt Black News she and her family were at a Memphis Walgreens in 2021 when they were swarmed by police, including Haley, seen here in this footage. Officers claimed they were looking for a shooter. Haley kind of snatched me up and he ended up grabbing me by my arm, and he just, he held that one arm, and as long as I got the arm, he kept telling me to stop resisting, stop resisting. Khadijah says that night, during the violent encounter, Haley dislocated her shoulder. I ended up going to the emergency room, the emergency room let me out, and I went to the jail, and the jail didn't accept me. No charges were ever filed against her. 
As the officer that put her in the hospital prepares to stand trial for the gruesome death of Tyree Nichols, the memories come flooding back. I seen his face on the news and I was like, it was the man that pulled me over at, um, at the Walgreens. It was just sad. People get a name and a badge and they just take it too far. Like they took it too far. Demetrius Haley was disciplined internally for Khadijah's arrest after an investigation found he did not write up the proper paperwork explaining the use of force. But the case was never turned over to the county for a full review. Now, Justin Smith, another co-defendant in the Nichols murder case, is asking for a separate trial, saying he wasn't present during the entire attack. We announce a $500 million landmark lawsuit against the Memphis Police Department in the city of Memphis. And Smith's fight for his own trial comes as the city of Memphis tries to get the lawsuit against them dismissed, claiming the city is not responsible for the actions of rogue cops. The Nichols family disagrees. But it is also a message to cities all across America who have these police oppression units that have been given the license by city leaders to go and terrorize black and brown communities. We want to thank Khadijah for sharing her story with Revolt Black News. We will continue to follow updates on the trial of the Memphis Five. Unfortunately, the brutality that we saw in Memphis is not an isolated case. We've seen rogue police units terrorizing communities all across the country and now in Mississippi. One of the biggest civil rights lawsuits in history has been filed against a police force near Jackson in the small town of Rankin County. What officers reportedly did to two black men there is shocking and outrageous. What I'm about to describe to you is one of the most bizarre and torturous police brutality incidents in American history. Black Lawyers for Justice lead attorney Malik Shabazz, who is representing 35-year-old Eddie Parker and 32-year-old Michael Corey Jenkins in a $400 million suit against the Rankin County, Mississippi Sheriff's Department, details the alleged events on the night of January 24th, when he says at least five deputies and an off-duty member of the Richmond Police Department entered Parker's home in Braxton, Mississippi. The Rankin County deputies without any kind of search warrant whatsoever, just burst into the home, handcuffed them, and held them for two and a half hours and did all manner of evil. So I made them my bedroom door. I saw the, you know, the police at the end of the hall. They you know, told me to get down. And I, I got down, and that's when all the hectic started. Located just east of the capital city of Jackson, Rankin County has a population of just over 157,000 and is 72% white and 21% black. The historical relationship between Rankin County Sheriff's Department and blacks is notorious. It has the reputation as being one of the founding locations of the Ku Klux Klan. Shabazz says this was a brutal racist attack, an attack that, based on alleged comments made by officers during the incident, could have been set off by their anger at the victims for dating white women. They will call racial slurs, 
repeatedly called and they were questioned as to why they were dating white women. Jenkins family spokesperson Priscilla Sterling Till says it's the same racist legacy that led to the lynching of her relative Emmett Till at the age of 14 in 1955. They are hiring the KKK, the neo-Nazis. They are becoming police officers. Among the deputies present and named in the lawsuit are Hunter Elward, Brett McAlpin, and Christian Dedman. For more than two hours that night, the deputies reportedly tortured Parker and Jenkins while they were handcuffed, including allegedly waterboarding them, a technique infamously used by U.S. operatives on suspected terrorists to simulate the feeling of drowning. These young men were subjected to these deputies taking liquids and pouring it on their faces in a wicked attempt to elicit a confession. I guess felt the way that I felt that night. I mean, as far as uh, not being able to breathe, it was, uh, it was both breathing and uh, trying to you know, keep, from, uh, keep breathing and keep from drowning. The deputies also allegedly threw eggs at the men, the remnants visible in this photo, forced them to strip naked and shower together, and attempted to assault Jenkins with a sex toy, all while laughing and taunting the two men. And then as their next to final act, both Eddie Parker and Michael Jenkins were tased at least 20 to 30 times between the two of them. But none of those acts comes close to the worst reported allegation. Officer Elward reportedly put his gun in Jenkins' mouth for more than a minute and then pulled the trigger, shooting him in the mouth at point blank range. Jenkins was shot. He's still in handcuffs. He's on the ground. Parker says that Jenkins' jaw was coming out of his face. Jenkins panics that he's about to die. So he gets up and stumbles to the front door. The ambulance finally comes and Michael Jenkins was taken to the University of Mississippi Medical Center where he narrowly avoided losing his life. Jenkins' mother, Mary, recounts finding her son shackled to his hospital bed at University Hospital, a Rankin County deputy watching over him. You may see if you can hear me, Michael. I said, please squeeze my hand. I had my arm on his hand. And so I was asking him, I'm sorry. He finally squeezed my hand. And so I, I was so, by the grace of God, I was so happy because I knew that he could, he could, at least he knew I was there. While Deputy Elward claims that Jenkins had pointed a gun at him, the only weapon found on the property was a BB gun. There is no footage of the incident because the deputies had reportedly turned off their body cameras that night. The deputies claim the raid was prompted by alleged drug activity at the home, and Jenkins was eventually charged with possessing between two and 10 grams of methamphetamine and aggravated assault of a police officer, while Parker was charged with two misdemeanors, possession of paraphernalia and disorderly conduct. At no point did Michael Jenkins or Eddie Terrell Parker resist the Rankin County deputies in any way. At least three of the five Rankin County deputies involved in the two-hour-long assault belong to a tactical special response unit. They are described by Rankin County residents as the death squad. And when they show up, bad things are about to happen. 
Such tactical squads gained national scrutiny in Memphis, Tennessee after Tyree Nichols died in January, just days after members of the Scorpion unit beat him severely following a traffic stop. You guys are really doing a lot right now. According to the Associated Press, Deputy Hunter Alward and others present at Parker's home have been involved in at least four violent encounters with black men since 2019 that left two dead. One of the victims, Damian Cameron, who had a history of mental illness, died in July of 2021 during a vandalism call at Cameron's mother's home. He was pronounced dead shortly after Elward choked and tased the 29-year-old and then left him unconscious in the back seat of his cruiser while he went inside the home to retrieve his taser. I want justice. I want the two officers held accountable, Ryan Bailey held accountable, because that was my child, and I think I deserve justice for him. In the case of Parker and Jenkins, after an internal investigation, Sheriff Brian Bailey, who is also named in the civil suit, fired the five deputies involved in the incident. Joshua Hartfield, the off-duty Richmond detective, was placed on administrative leave and has since resigned. We have cooperated with all investigation efforts related to this incident and have provided all information and data requested in a timely manner. This will continue until all investigative efforts are complete and justice is served. Meanwhile, Michael Jenkins continues to recover from his wounds. Michael Jenkins has a permanent paralysis, serious issues with eating. He has more surgeries that he will have to undergo. And of course, there's long-term psychological damage as a result of this uh, two-hour torture session and shooting. The deputies involved could face criminal charges. The FBI released a statement that they, along with the Department of Justice and the Southern District of Mississippi's U.S. Attorney's Office, have opened a federal civil rights investigation into a color of law incident involving the Rankin County Sheriff's Office. It was traumatizing, man. It, it was a, a night of hell, something I never thought I would go through because of the color of our skin. While the civil suit filed by attorney Shabazz seeks punitive damages of 400 million for pain, suffering, trauma, and humiliation. If successful, it will set a record for damages by a police force in the United States. There must be punishment for these outrageous acts, as well as a deterrent for other law enforcement officers that a message be sent that this must never happen again. I'm here sitting here because I don't want another black woman to have to bury their son just because they got stopped by the police. Clearly what reportedly happened to these two men in Jackson and to Tyree Nichols is awful. But are there circumstances where these aggressive police units are actually an important part of keeping crime in check? We'll bring that conversation right here into our studios after the break. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. It's all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. 
Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome back. It seems like we are bombarded with images of aggressive police confronting, beating, and even killing black people. It happens far too often in our communities. Many of those tactics are intentional. Hotspot policing is a technique used all across the country to target high crime areas in hopes of dramatically deterring and decreasing criminal activity. But the question is, is this effective and does it unfairly target black people? Well, joining me now to get into all of this, Hawk Newsom, community organizer and BLM activist, and Officer Jeremy Bohannon from Austin, Texas. I just want to ask you about some of what we've seen from these hotspot policing units. It seems that we've seen such aggressive behavior. And the question is, is there a way to do that type of policing that doesn't destroy community relations or by its very nature, are these units a problem? You know, with hotspot, I always, you know, you have to go back to the root causes. There's a large concentration of people and really there's a large concentration of poverty. Um, people who, you know, can't provide or don't have those resources. And so a lot of times that's why you see a large presence of policing. And so if you don't really understand um, why things are the way that they are and just start sending people who may only have a few years on the streets or don't even understand the community that they're trying to serve, um, then that's when it becomes a problem. And they start seeing that that area as a problem area with people there that just have a tendency to be a certain way and not realizing the root causes of what's actually going on in this country. Hawk, you know, as we mentioned, um, these groups are often uh, put in communities with high crime. And the logic behind their tactics is often, well, tough circumstances, tough people require a tough response. What do you think the response should be in these communities to bring crime levels down? Because as I'm sure you agree, those in the communities deserve to live in a low crime environment. I believe that the officer actually touched on something that's extremely relevant. You have to uh, cure poverty instead of fighting crime. With that being said, these hot, this hotspot policing or, or whatever you want to call these units are nothing more than a modern day Gestapo. Like you, you are sending officers in with the intention of violating the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects people against illegal search and seizure. You have this stop, question, and frisk, which is here in New York that Mayor Adams brought back. So what we have is politically motivated policing. And if you want to know what to do about this, then you need to abolish the police and replace the police with social workers with guns and find new ways to make people obey the law because the culture of policing is rotten from the top down. Officer Bohannon, if we're talking about cultural shifts, how do you change a culture of policing that has virtually been unchanged since the beginning of policing? I think the shift is occurring now. I think it's gonna take time. It obviously has not hit. It's just hard to be a part of it when you don't have the support around you. So I do feel like I'm very optimistic that there can be change. But the problem is, is that we need enough people coming in and enough support from the outside to make sure that that change everybody understands is that's what the community wants. They still, we still want people to go out and protect. And so if, if police officers want to keep their jobs, then this is the way that they need to start viewing their jobs. 
Hawk, do you share his optimism that, that a massive cultural shift in policing is possible? Absolutely not. Um, it's, it's really hard for me not to get angry when I hear things like this because people like uh, the officer are ignoring the truth and they lack vision. You have a rise in crime. Why? Because there's something called the blue flu where police sit back and let us kill each other and wait for the public to cry out, we need the police. Then you have this thing called the thin blue line, whereas uh, police don't rat on police. They encourage criminals to, to, to rat on each other. But when police commit crimes, other cops don't stop them. I really feel bad for you, boss, because you a lot of people will look at you and say that you're a good cop, but there's no such thing as a good cop. Show me the good cop that pulled uh, that cop off, uh, Eric Garner. Show me the good cop that stopped the murder of George Floyd, right? Show me those good cops. I don't see that. What I see is gang assaults carried out by police officers where cops are taking turns pummeling black people and none of them are stopping each other. You have the facts, you have the truth, but you still hope for this thing that's never going to happen. Police were created to keep in check and they will do that until they are abolished. I definitely respect what you say. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of it is true. We do see that type of stuff happening. Uh, but there's a lot of things that you also don't see. I can give you a personal of mine where an officer, we just got done arresting somebody after we were putting him in handcuffs. The officer still had his knee on his back. And I say, hey, all right, we got him in cuffs. Let's get off. Let's get him up. You won't see that on video because nothing happened to that person. There's been a lot of instances where that happens. You're never going to see that. Officer Bohannon, when it comes when it comes to these units, do you think they are effective? Do you think they should continue to have a presence in communities? And if so, what changes in oversight do you think we need to see? Honestly, I, I do believe that it, it depends on the community. If there is a collaboration with the community about what's happening in those communities, people are being held accountable. There's enough communication where at least the community trusts that the officers that are put in those places are there to protect them and to hold people accountable who are doing bad by the community, then yes, I do believe that it can work and can be effective. The problem is, is we don't see enough stories about that. And when you leave the community out and you shut them out, that's when you're going to have problems. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Hawk, I always appreciate your passion. I hope you'll come back and join us again. And, and Officer Bohannon, um, you know, we hear a lot about the blue wall of silence. It is a very real thing. And so we really do appreciate you coming here and sharing your honest opinion and assessment on this topic. Thank you both for your time. Well, after the break, we're going to switch things up. Black women are increasingly looking for love in unlikely places, and they're finding it. That's coming up. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back. This season, the star of ABC's hit dating show, The Bachelorette, is a black woman. Recently, Charity Lawson stopped by the Revolt Studios here and spoke to R. Kennedy Rue about the fact that many of her potential bays on the show are white men. Well, it turns out that she's not the only one, as black women are more open to interracial dating than ever before. So we decided to take a deeper look at the new face of interracial dating. 
There's a new look of love we're seeing more and more these days. From entertainment, to red carpets, to the Supreme Court. He's been the best husband, father, and friend I could ever imagine. Take a look at all of these women. What do they have in common? Black women dating, and in many cases, marrying white men. 27-year-old Charity Lawson might just be the next high-profile black woman with a white husband. The star of ABC's The Bachelorette is looking for love on season 20 of the dating competition. Only nine of her 25 suitors are black. She recently sat down with R. Kennedy Rue to discuss finding love across the color line. I will say, like, I probably did have a type, like, obviously when I was a lot younger, and I think yeah. that's just, like, what your environment is, like, that's who you're around. But, like, as I've gotten older, as I've gotten to know myself, it's like, mm -hmm. I don't like to say that I have a type because I connect with people for who they are, um, their personalities, what they exude as a person, their characteristics, like, that's what stands out to me. Yeah. And um, that doesn't determine based off of your race. Charity is the fourth oh, black bachelorette. Two of the three before her. Will you marry me? ended up choosing white men. But black women with white men isn't just the stuff of Hollywood. It's a trend that's growing in real life, too. In 1980, 3% of black women were married to white men. Today, that number is four times that, at 12%. Black women really do love black men. As a group, black women have been the slowest to dip their toes into the interracial dating pool, one of the most racially loyal when it comes to relationships. I don't care what nobody say. When a black man loves you, ugh. But now they are diving in. I think they have a problem when it comes to black women having interracial relationships. I would argue that when black women are seen as deviating from the upholding the, I want to have like quotes here, like upholding the black family structure, that is received differently than when black men do it. Historically, interracial dating in the black community meant black men dating white women, black men twice as likely to have a spouse of another race. For a white girl. So much so that it became a cliche. But more and more, black women have been facing a dilemma. They're the most educated group in the country and also the most likely to be unpartnered at a staggering 62%. When it comes to their prospective partners, black men are less likely than sisters to have completed high school or received a college degree. So black women are 53% less likely to marry a man with advanced degrees. And one out of every six black men between 25 and 54 have disappeared from daily life. Incarceration and early deaths, the main drivers behind their absence, leading many black women to expand their horizons. Would you date a bus driver? You, would you date if a bus driver? If he owns the bus, if he owns no. it. So if you're then looking for a partner who you see as your equal and you're including education, um, and income level and your determination of who's your quote unquote equal, then it makes like logical sense. You might also be in spaces and environments that are predominantly white. For many black women, it isn't about lack or problems with black men, but about expanding options. I don't think it's a black man, white man. I think just people overall need to treat people how they want to be treated. Full of love themselves, they didn't... Interracial marriage has only been legal for 55 years. A black woman and her white husband breaking that barrier. I'm going to build you a house. Yes, sir, yes, sir. 
It's your boy Spitty here from DGB, aka Dirty Glove Bastards, off the porch podcast. Now, if you're a fan of artist interviews, then make sure to check out and subscribe to Off the Porch, a show that interviews everybody from the dopest up and coming artists, your favorite OGs and legends, street comedians, directors, and other influential people from the culture. And it's brought to you exclusively by Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. Right here, our house. The 2016 film Loving depicted the story of Mildred and Richard Loving. Danita! Richard! What you doing in bed with that woman? In 1958, the couple was sentenced to a year in prison for marrying each other. They appealed their conviction all the way to the Supreme Court. You realize this case could alter the Constitution of the United States. And in June 1967, the court issued a unanimous decision overturning their convictions and making interracial marriage legal. But the history of black women and white men hasn't always been so loving. I made a choice, Mama. The same choice you made with Master Wales. I didn't have no choice. <gasps> For centuries, an untold number of enslaved black women were raped and abused by their white enslavers who viewed them as property. God give her to me. Today, these relationships still have their challenges. Black folks don't really have a good relationship with boats. <laughs> That's very true, or water. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Jews with trains, right? Oh, <laughs> bingo. <laughs> Are you trying to compare the Holocaust to slavery? Dr. Vanessa Gonlin is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia who did a study on black women who date white men and the challenges they face. It's a very uncomfortable conversation. You ever figure out what happened with the potatoes? ETA on this? Most of the judgment comes from black men and white women. So one of my interviewees said she was literally walking down the street with her white male partner and a black man called at her comeback home system. And it stood out to me because first of all, it's an example of a black man saying like, <laughs> I'm not happy with this, this dynamic, but it's deeper than that because he's saying come back home as if she's lost her way, as if she's disconnected from her community, as if like she is further distanced from blackness. Um, and then when it was white women who show discontent, usually it would be white women who were the um, mothers or the ex-wives or ex-girlfriends of the white male partner. So someone much closer to the relationship, which then meant that they had a different amount of power. So for example, there's one black woman whose white male partner had a white ex-wife and she said, you cannot see our kids anymore if you continue dating that N-word. Despite the challenges for an increasing number of black women, following their heart is still the best option. I mean, obviously it's 2023, so. Right. It, it, we have, just, I can't even say like get over it, but it's like, that's really what it is. It's like, get over, this is where we are at. Mm -hmm. um, and all I can wish and pray is that like, hopefully at some point in their lives, like their eyes are open to what really is love. What's your advice to other black women about exploring their options? Yeah, um, my advice is just 
truly stay open. Mm -hmm. I think the most important important point is truly just knowing yourself, yeah. um, knowing what you want. Love at the end of the day, love is love. Well, this is definitely something we need to talk more about. After the break, we'll dig into why some black women are choosing white men in higher numbers and why others, they just ain't here for it. That's coming up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're going to find people of all different races who are willing to meet your needs, who you're going to be attracted to, who you want to build a fruitful life with. And if you're constantly taking into account this factor of race, which is arbitrary, superficial, means absolutely nothing, you're going to have a hard time. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversation about how and why black women are entering the interracial dating pool more than ever before. Joining me are licensed marriage and family therapist Tiana Teague, Brooklyn S. Lowe, owner of Social Graces Consulting, and TikTok influencer Christy Baton, too. Thank you all for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I want to start with you, Brooklyn, because you have experience dating interracially. You have a biracial child. I do. Why have you found yourself attracted to white men or gone into these relationships? What's the appeal? I have found that um, I've always been drawn to men who are um, artistic, men who are kind, men who are um, funny and gracious and who are open. And um, black men are also the, all of those things, but they didn't approach me as much as white men did. And so I found myself in these really fun, creative spaces where I was open in myself. And then there was another gentleman who was open in himself and he happened to be a white man. And so conversation sparks and we got to get to know each other. So it's not that you have anything against black men. Oh, absolutely not. But it's just been circumstances that have often led you into these relationships. Absolutely. What is different about dating a white man versus a black man? <laughs> Change subject, once I know. <laughs> uh, the things that is different about dating a white man, um, well, um, they haven't had the black experience. And so there are a lot of things that we can have that's similar. There's a lot of interest that we can have that's connecting. Um, there's a lot of places that we can go to and enjoy some of the same experiences, but what they have not done is walk the shoes of the black experience, especially here in America. And that is a difference. It's something that really can't be taught. Um, and that's a factor that is missing when you are in an interracial relationship. Um, and that's some, that, that is something that I would say would be, would be different. Other than that, somebody who is kind, generous, who is loving, sensitive, those things cross race lines. Uh, Christy, you say beware of red flags. So what are some of the red flags that you think black women should be careful about as they're dipping their toe into this pool? Absolutely. I really do believe that some white men, not all, find dating black women as the opportunity to become close to blackness in a way that they never had before. So for example, Growing up, I grew up in predominantly white areas, so it was very rare for white men to seek me out. And when they did, it, I tried to be very careful 
for the things that they would say because it would be really strange, honestly. For example, I went on a date with this guy and the first thing he told me was, I listen to more rap music than you. I think I'm more black than you. <laughs> so a lot of white men really do believe that because they have a black woman as a partner, that they are closer to proximity to blackness. No one wants to be fetishized. You don't want to be somebody's fetish if you're looking for a relationship and, and a marriage and a partnership. Uh, nobody wants to be used as kind of a, a way into the black community if someone is just seeking to be cooler and whatever the case may be. Um, so how do you suggest women navigate some of those challenges where someone's intentions may not be pure? Um, I would say how you would navigate any other relationship, to be honest, when you're seeing red flags. I think that you can tell when someone is being intentional about wanting to get to know you and mm -hmm. want to create an authentic relationship with you versus someone who's there to use you. And that goes across both lines, to be honest. So I think that if, um, if you are having that feeling, then I suggest women walk away. Now, uh, black men have a very unique experience in this country. Would you expect black women to see certain differences when it comes to intimacy and expressions of masculinity if they only know black men and then they start dating a white man? What, what could they expect to show up differently? What I've seen, um, particularly with working with either black couples or just working with black men, um, with the um, lack of maybe emotional um, intelligence, is a huge thing I've noticed. There's toxic masculinity in both, but when it comes to the black male, it looks different. And it doesn't allow black men to be vulnerable and open sometimes. And I'm not saying all black men are like this, but that is a very common struggle. And so I think that that creates sometimes a disconnect when trying to create um, connection and intimacy um, in relationships. Whether a black woman is dating a white man or if she's dating a black man, if she has the mentality to be taken advantage of in that way, it's, it's going to happen, right? Because um, our struggles are not with flesh and blood, right? It's someone's spirit. So if someone is looking to abuse or to take advantage of or to flex their toxic masculinity in any type of way, they're gonna look for a victim in order to do that too. So that spirit can be in any race. <laughs> that can be in any person. I posted that on Twitter and they were all in an uproar. I said, I said, my father's Italian, my mother's a black woman. There you go. I, I said, Italians love black women. Oh, all the hate messages that I got about that. I'm sorry. Uh, I, <laughs> I could, it could fill a book. <laughs> so, um, but is this a really empowering time for mm. black women where mm. we are prioritizing ourselves? We yes. are saying we want good partners and yes. we don't care what color they come in. Is this our time? I think it is. I think it is. It is our time. It's our time. Yeah. Most definitely. Do you feel that white men who are on these, these dating apps, do you think that they're open to being approached by black women? I think so. I honestly think there are actually the same amount of black men that want black women are, there's the same amount of non-black men that want to talk to black women. I just don't think we expand our, um, our dating pool enough. And if I think we expanded it enough, we would see that there are a lot of non-black men that actually want to date black women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Do you think that that tells us maybe that white men have wanted that door to be open for quite some time, but oh, they didn't yeah. feel welcome making the approach? Have they been waiting for this moment? <laughs> I think they've been waiting for this episode right now on Remote Black <laughs> News to be like, y'all got yes. it. We just wanted to say hey. We also know that it is our time to be happy, and that yes. means yes. going after the love and the life that you It want. is our time to put ourselves first. Yes. And we don't have to be alone. Yes. I think a lot of black women are choosing yes. to be alone instead of, hey, I can open my dating pool instead of being alone. Yes. You know? Now, Tiana, what we've seen statistically is that black women have been the most hesitant yes. to date interracially. Yes. Um, but now we're seeing that start to change in a way that feels like a real cultural shift. Mm -hmm. Why do you think black women for so long were so hesitant to go there? And why do you think now they seem to be quite okay with it? Um, I think there's a couple reasons. I do think one of the reasons is I think that black women tend to have a a loyalty towards black men um, in a sense where they feel like if they were to date outside their race, they would be dis there would be this perception that they're disconnecting from the black community. Um, but I think that the shift is coming because um, not only are black women leading when it comes to having high earning salaries, when they're knowing their value, they're knowing their worth. And when you know that, you kind of don't care about the perception of other people anymore. You choose to, you know, be happy and um, date, you know, you're willing to be open um, to people who value you. And when it comes to black families, you know, Brooklyn, you're raising a biracial child. I am. If your child were to partner and, and have children with a, a white person, your grandkids and that family would look very, very different than yes. the family that you came from. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that, about how it's changing the dynamic of black families? I think we really have to have the hard conversation of how we define blackness. Because even in an interracial couple, you're going to have two people that may have two different walks of life. One that has had uh, the privilege of being a white person in this country and the other person that has been a black person in this country. And that, that is not generationally. I mean, that's, that's right now. And so even then, we have to come together and say, what is the story that we're telling? and how can we give honor to both of our experiences. It really begins in the home. Mm -hmm. It truly does begin in the home and how you expect your kids to live those out and teach others. Thank you so much to Brooklyn, Christy, and Tiana for joining me. Don't go anywhere, we'll be right back a lot more after the break. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. That wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
right, what's going on? It's your girl, Lala Shepard. Boss Britt, the most lit. What's up? It's your girl, DJ Excel, and you are tuned into the Progress Report podcast. Okay, and if you're a fan of hip-hop news and culture, make sure y'all like and subscribe to our podcast, The Progress Report. Brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators.